Welcome. Welcome back, everyone, to another Black Crate Connect podcast episode. I'm looking up now. <laughs> to another Black Crate Connect podcast episode, where we speak with some of the most influential, inspirational, and powerful black leaders around the world. And today, I have literally, I think, an angel in person. Literally. You, f- you have angel energy. If, if you very kind. If you- <laughs> Never been described in that way before, but I'll take it. You do, you have such beautiful energy. Um, we have Leah Brown, who is the CEO of Broadstairs Consulting. Um, she also has Leah Talk Limited as well, where she's a writer, speaker, advisor in legal services for early, early stage fintech businesses. So welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. No, it's okay. I'm excited to have you. Your journey and your experience is so unique. And I thought I have to feed, I have to get get some of it, you know. I'm sure I can learn something and the listeners can learn something, you know? Anything I missed out in the intro at all? No. Perfect. So, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. You know, it's such a wonder to be on the other side of the podcast fence. As I said earlier, I've I've been recording podcast episodes for season two of The Longest Day. Um, with members of the House of Lords and really influential leaders across society. So it's nice to be interviewed for a change. Um, I don't say very much on the longest day. So Really? Yeah. You just ask the questions and let... I aim for like an 87% guest, 13% interviewer ratio. So That's so specific. Not even 80-20 or 70-30. 13 and 87. Those are the averages for season one. So yeah. Trying to keep that up. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's... Well, that's good. I'm sure it's working for you. Whatever it is, it's working for you. But um, so anyway, for for those that don't know, just give us an overview of your your business. So Leah Talks and Broadstairs Consulting. We're going to get into it further a bit later, but just get to give an overview before we delve deep into your journey. Absolutely. So I uh, was called to the bar in 2011 and I was unsuccessful in securing pupillage. So I ended up training at a Magic Circle law firm and I decided to specialize in corporate M&A. And my career has taken me on wonderful twists and turns. Um, but like many people during the pandemic, I found my voice really through writing and mm. I have written a memoir that is currently on submission with various publishers. And it sparked something in me that I felt creatively suppressed in my day job. And so once I delivered a strategic transaction and resigned from my position, mm. I decided to be self-employed. And Leah Talks was born because what I really wanted was more creativity. And so I wanted to be able to get paid to write. I wanted to get paid to speak. And um, in order to finance that, it's a lot easier to start with what you're already doing. So I just became a consultant legal advisor. And that was how I financed my books editing um, and a lot of the other costs that writers face and um, enjoyed that very much. But... About nine months into that journey, I realized that I was getting a very specific type of work that wasn't entirely legal in nature. I was being asked to fix things or step into crisis situations. And I said, okay, I think I need to spin this off and make this another business. Mm. And I set up Broadstairs Consulting and I very quickly realized this is not something that I can do by myself. And so I've built a whole team around me and... um, 
it's extremely exciting to be doing something novel mm. um, that has a USP using mediation in business situations to help boards and leaders thrive and flourish in crisis situations, but also day to day. I love that. Really, really nice summary. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and congrats on your success so far um, that we're going to kind of go go into. So just to go a little bit further back into your journey, you studied, so just to talk about what you studied and where your journey really started. It might have started before your studies. So go as back as you feel comfortable just to get an understanding. Well, I think there are a lot of assumptions that people might make about me if they just met me today but um, I'm a third culture kid so I was not born in the UK I do not have British parents and I while I did do um, primary school education in the UK we actually relocated to the US Um, so I did high school education um, in the States but I also did some university studies alongside my high school so My mother was a university professor and thought it was a good idea for me to be a special student at a university at the bright age of 13. So I did that alongside my high school curriculum studying music uh, as a primary major, which I enjoyed very much. Um, I have always enjoyed playing the violin and other instruments Oh, you play play the violin? Yeah. See, angelic. That's such an angelic instrument as well. So... Um, yes, and I and I violin playing is something that's always been very close to my heart. If I hadn't been a lawyer, I was going to be a professional violinist. So um, it's always been kind of core to who I am. Um, but I graduated high school early in the US and uh, was really too young to go to university. And I was desperate to be back in England with my friends and uh, with a culture that was familiar to me. I, I knew that I really wanted to study here. Mm. So having finished high school, I got sent back to school and I went to a boarding school in Derbyshire where... Can I ask? Yes. First of all, I don't know, we don't know where you were born. <laughs> and we don't know how old, how old you were when you um, left high school in the US. So do you mind sharing that information? Absolutely. So I was born in Maryland um, in the Washington DC metropolitan okay. area. And I was... 12 when I started high school and I was applying to universities in my senior year when I was 15. I was 16 by the time I graduated and uh, so it was the right age to come back to England and do my A-levels. So Mm. I actually went to university as a much more well-adjusted student by the time I was 18. Mm. Um, But it was one of the reasons that I found being at boarding school as a teenager particularly challenging because I felt like I'd already grown up. So that was a, a bit of a an eccentricity that I kind of had to come to terms with. So when you came to the UK, you came you came back at 15? Uh, just 16, yeah. 16. And you had to go to boarding school? Yes. So I got a music scholarship because the view was that my best chances of getting into the type of university that I wanted to go to were to spend time um, back at school. Right. Mm. Okay. So you had to do, how long did you do the I just school? did my A-levels. So I just did the two years. I don't know that they have A-levels um, boarding schools. Like that was an actual thing. Here? Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that that was a... Like, I, I mean, I haven't really looked into it or or discovered it. What was that experience truly like for you? It wouldn't be a surprise, I think, to say that I was the only black girl in the school at the, the time. Um, I don't think that that was any uh, particularly challenging for me. I, I've always kind of been 
different in every uh, situation that I find myself in. Uh, culturally, it was extremely challenging. Mm. Um, but the hardest thing about it was that there was an abject disregard for anything that I had experienced in my life up until that point. I hadn't done GCSEs, so I was getting to grips with a curriculum mm. that wasn't in and of itself extremely challenging, but it was just different than what I had come from. Mm. And the acute challenge on top of that was that I had been to four schools in the previous four years. And so I hadn't had any continuity in my education at all. So I yeah. kind of just jumped from thing to thing to thing. So um, in the US, you do um, subjects for one academic year at a time. So I might not have done biology since I was 12. Um, I might not have done really? one focused segment of maths since I was 13. And yet I've got to pull it all together to figure out how do I do mechanics? How do I do statistics? So yeah. it was very much a fish out of water mm. and... As I was uh, surveying the lay of the land, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to make myself um, amenable and mm. be that chameleon, um, there was a presumption that I was less than and that I wasn't good enough. And so when I went in like, okay, right, I'm here, I'm gonna do my work, I'm gonna get into Oxbridge, you're gonna support me, everything's gonna be fine. They were like, no, 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 no. You're gonna get Ds, Es and Fs in your A-levels and you're never gonna be as good at anything as you are at playing your violin. They said so that why don't you go? for the university education that requires you to get two E's so that you can be comfortable. They said that to you? Correct. I'm speechless. How can they say that to, to a student? That's not, that's like aim for the floor type of type of encouragement. What, were, what did your parents say to that first and foremost? I don't think I told them. You didn't tell them. How did you respond to that? Like, inter like internally and then action wise, what did you? Well, it's something that I've thought a lot about since. Uh, it's something that actually I was thinking about yesterday. And the character flaw in me was that I chose to believe them. You I, believe them. I, I chose to believe them. I didn't have sufficient positive reinforcement to encourage me to believe that they were wrong. I think there were so many areas in my life in which I felt like I was going against the status quo. Mm. I was like, okay, well... Uh, they're my teachers. They they must be able to accurately assess whether I'm going to succeed or or, or um, fail here. Mm. And so, um, I'm I'm a very intro. I'm a very um, introverted person, and I'm I'm quite considered in the way that I think about things. I took it very hard. Yeah. Um. There is a a huge spirit in me. Don't tell me I can't do something. Um. And and obviously, you know. I did the A-levels, I got the grades, I was supported to be an Oxbridge candidate. Um, so that, that story wasn't kind of career limiting in that mm. sense, but um, it was absolutely demoralizing. And the mm. thing that was particularly challenging for me as I went into adulthood was that somebody had spoken over my life that I would never be as good at anything as I am at playing my violin, which mm. as I look at it back now, what a compliment. I must've been a phenomenal yeah. violin player. but. But that's not how I took it as a 16 year old. I took a, I'm never going to be able to achieve it. These other things that make me whole. Yeah. Incredibly problematic. What did you want to do when you, when, when you were um, at that point? Because I'm guessing a lot of the time we're fed or we do what either teachers tell us or our parents tell us or what we see around us. So what did you want to do and where did that kind of come from? I'm not sure. And I I have that hesitation because I had a lot of deference. 
I was the people pleaser of all people pleasers. Mm. And um, my parents are both scientists and had a very fixed view of what uh, academics and academic success and career looked like. And I was very much a rebel on that score by wanting to do anything creative uh, in the first place. So uh, I decided to apply to university to do philosophy and politics. There were various permutations of that, mm. but I, I was pretty clear that long term, I wanted to have as many options open to me as were available. I knew that I was a thinker. Uh, I knew that I was quite diplomatic. Mm. Um, I think if I was doing it again, I probably would just become a lawyer. It would have saved me a huge amount of money if I'd just gone um, straight in as an undergraduate lawyer. Um, but my, my passion wasn't for that. My, my passion was for expressing myself um, and English literature was really what I wanted to do. And the view was that unless I wanted to be a teacher, which I knew early on I, I didn't, what was I going to do with an English degree? So philosophy was acceptable. We went with that. What did your parents say? A scientist. And I actually, do you know what background you're from? Like what um, heritage, if you're Caribbean? Just... Yeah, my mum grew up in Barbados. Okay. And my dad grew up in Miami. And they're both scientists. Yes. That's so fascinating. Yes. So my mum is a molecular biologist and hematologist. What does that mean? In, in, she like, biochemistry. She, okay. she uh, historically would um, sit in the lab and, and investigate things, but also was a, a phenomenal teacher and really enthused undergraduate students um, in biology and in chemistry. Um, very, very good at helping people to understand concepts mm. that are unintelligible to the, the naked eye. And my dad uh, has a PhD in electrical engineering and he has a background in intelligence. So um, yes, very, very, very smart parents. Amazing, amazing examples as well. It, it goes to show um, as to why you are the way you are. So with that being said then, you said you studied, went to study philosophy and politics. And I remember when I chose um, my subjects, not for university, but for GCSE, I think I chose like dance and drama and all these creative subjects. My dad kicked up a storm. Like Jamaican parent, he was like, that's not what I think you to school for. Didn't understand it. How did your parents respond to that? Let's just say I've always known my own mind. I'm extremely stubborn. And uh, I, I, it's very difficult for me to convince myself to do something if I don't think that it's a good idea or if I can really see that my heart's not in it. Mm. I knew that I wasn't good at the things that they were good at. And so I, I knew that pushing myself to do something that fit neatly in that box of expectation was not going to yield the results. So I was like, I'm not going to set myself up to fail. Mm. This is what I'm good at. I'm going to go and do this. Mm. Uh, but I think the nuance there was that the UK educational system is different than in the US. Mm. When we study our undergraduate degrees, we get the freedom to do whatever we want without self-limiting what we choose to do next. There are so many um, people who've studied geography and find themselves in the civil service, mm. or um, you can study maths and um, decide to be a creative writer or work in journalism. Our undergraduate degrees are an opportunity for us to grow up and to think laterally and critically. Mm. Whereas in the US, it's much more vocationally challenged, uh, sorry, channeled. And um, I think, for me, because 
I wasn't clear on what I wanted to do after mm. university. I was extremely short-termist in the way that I was considering things. And the presumption was that I would do my undergraduate degree and I would immediately do a postgraduate degree and then I would find somewhere and some way to do a PhD. Mm. And I, I could have done all of those things mm. and in many ways doing postgraduate law that ticks, ticks that box. But I learned a lot about myself whilst I was studying my degree and I was very, very invested in both sports and music at university. Oh, really? What sports? I play, I was a fencer for Durham. What, what's a fencer? Fencing, where you have a, a sword and you wear generally <laughs> white gear. So you'll have a, a full leotard with arms mm. and um, effectively like leggings and um, you'll have... Um, hit they call it a lame jacket so that you get plugged into your sword and then the hits can register um much like duels that you might see in old never heard films. of any of this i feel like i can picture it in my mind like i've seen it in the film when would you get into that <laughs> so again listen like you're full of surprises but I, i'm enjoying it I know that secondary school was was fairly complex, but primary school was also quite an experience. I, uh -huh. I had the privilege of going to a prep school in North Yorkshire. And when I started, um, girls were only allowed to attend if they had younger brothers who were enrolled. So as soon as my brother turned three and was enrolled in school, I was allowed to go. And uh, one of the options for PE we all had the kind of compulsory um, pee that you did in the gymnasium with mm. the, the horses and the benches and all of that. Um, but we also had specialist opportunities and a fencing teacher came into school one day and um, got to try it out. And I was like, oh, I quite like this. And um, they said, well, you know, we think they're going to come back. So would you like to do a bit more? Would you like to sign up for the term? And that was it. I was then a fencer and I, I did it week in, week out. I, I fenced competitively on the weekends. Uh, I fenced for Yorkshire. I fenced for Derbyshire. I went to nationals every year. And then Amazing. so by the time I went to university, it was kind of a logical choice Thing. for university level sport. But I, I would have very happily played football or netball or even lacrosse if I'd been uh, given the opportunity or had more time. How do you win in fencing? By being the first to reach a certain number of hits. With a sword? So, yes. Against your opponent. So, so I'm guessing you get hurt? No. No, because your jacket protects you. So you have oh. um, you have lining in your jacket. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like paintball in terms of... Okay. You know, so it's the, like it, there's a pressure, but it's exactly. not... That's so interesting yeah. that, that, that you'd want to do that. Especially because I think back then it wouldn't have typically been seen as the girl's first choice sport which I love the fact that you saw it as yeah let me try it and let me let me go for it and you continued that you succeeded in that that's amazing and then you played the violin as well overall high achiever violin came first violin has been a stalwart since I was four um, and do you remember how you started the violin yes my my mother just loves music and she wanted us to be well-rounded so I did all sorts I mean I I did ballet I did horse riding I did uh, a lot of music and she really invested in us to ensure that um, we would have every opportunity. And I, I really, I honestly, I look back and I don't know how my parents did it because um, our background does not lend itself 
to these types of opportunities or this sort of privilege. And uh, it has been an extraordinary journey on, for so many reasons, many of which have not yet been discussed mm. between you and I. Mm. Um, but as I look at the ways in which we were set up to believe in ourselves, to think that we could do anything that we tried, um, and to genuinely believe that the sky was the limit, that started at home. Amazing. It sounds like it. It sounds like it did anyway, and it sounds like you had good influences. You grew up really, you know, well able to kind of try anything, explore anything, which has helped to, I guess, build your character today. Yes, the caveat to that is the drive. And I think uh, even from a very young age, I was a conundrum to the people around me. They're like, why is this child so driven? Where does it come from? You know, we're not forcing her. My parents were always very confused. They're like, we're not forcing her to do any of these things. She's just like Mm. committed to being an overachiever. There's a sinister side to that. There often is. And um, home was not easy. Uh, I think we very much functioned as four individuals Mm. who all passed through the world very differently, Mm. uh, excelling in the things that we were naturally good at. Mm. Um, but it, it it wasn't the most stable environment. Um, it wasn't the most emotionally uh, welcoming environment. What, your home life? Yes, and much of this is the, the subject of the, the book that I've written. And uh, part of that is growing up with um, uh, parents that are neurodivergent. Part of that is growing up with a primary caregiver who has a personality disorder. And um, it's so interesting as I look back and have this conversation with you, Mm. because the way I remember it is the way that many other people saw it. Um, Roses, once you leave the front door, but you know, behind closed doors, it's it's a diversity. It's adversity that makes character. And um, yes, opportunities are what you make of them, Mm. but the perseverance and the tenacity has been forged through hardship. And um, yeah, holding those two things in tension um, is definitely a challenge. When when you recognise, when did you recognise that actually things weren't as rosy as they potentially seemed? Because I'm sure growing up as a child, you may not have necessarily been switched on or were you to pick up on particular things? Oh no, definitely acutely aware. Um, one of the things about being in the older sibling is that you instinctively protect your younger sibling and so my way of dealing with difficult situations was to not concern myself with what I needed um, it was always about um, protecting my brother or making sure that uh, everyone in the situation had what they needed or um, being that buffer or um, ensuring that uh, I was appeasing mm. whatever was going around me so that we could just have a a quiet life. I was desperate to just have a quiet, stable mm. life. And um, that's where the, the passion for diplomacy came from. It's partly why I really enjoy being a mediator um, because I've had far too much practice from a very young age. So I, I was acutely aware of the fact that things were not as they ought to be. What I didn't have any acknowledgement in was how far off kilter they actually were. Mm. And so... I think it probably wasn't until 
around my university graduation, um, I was 21, that I realized that home was much more complicated and much more difficult than I had ever really been willing to accept. And the catalyst for this uh, was a couple of things happened. Um, unfortunately, my mother was involved in a terrible accident um, after my parents had decided to um, separate. And the spiral was a very, very slow burn. And it culminated in a situation where my mum ended up getting arrested and sectioned, having threatened to burn down the house with she and the kittens inside. Uh, police had attended the, the house, the local vicar. And um, this is what I talk about in, in my memoir. It's it's my experience being uh, what you call in the, the UK, the nearest relative under the UK Mental Health Act when somebody is arrested and sectioned. In the US, it's a totally different system. And at the time at which that happened, because my parents were still married, the responsibility was actually my father's. And one of the eccentricities of the US system is that you couldn't have a nearest relative construct because of HIPAA laws. So it was a totally different experience. What's, what's HIPAA laws? So um, HIPAA is the the law that um, was set up by um, a former democratic government to ensure that medical information remained private to the individual that it belonged right. to. And the th there are merits to it, um, but somebody needs to be responsible for your care. And when you are not of sound mind, somebody needs to be able to intervene on your behalf. Mm. And the patient, in my opinion, shouldn't be able to override the, the wishes of those who are responsible for them or would take care of them um, simply on the basis of a legislation that's not necessarily intended to cater those very, very specific circumstances. Mm. But anyway, the, lo the long and short of it is that my mum came to the UK uh, after some time and uh, the same thing happened again and again. And with as with mental health, it may well happen again. And so there was something about the challenges that just being close to that situation and the unpredictability of it and the strangely long timeframes um, over which events would unfold that made me think other people must go through this. I'm sure I am not alone. So I'm going to write a book about my experiences for the one because I couldn't find the support or the encouragement or the help that I needed when I was in that situation to properly discharge my duties. So if I can help one person feel less alone as they go through that experience, I would like to do that. Give us an overview. Um, and also, thank you for sharing that. As you were speaking, I was processing a lot of the things you were saying. I'm sorry to hear about what happened with your mum as well. That is um, challenging. It sounds like it would have been a journey. Um, what time period? How long did, did, did that last? Or you having to intervene and actively be there? Yeah, I think the, the first time that it happened in 2017, uh, the spiral to the arrest to the nurse's declaration that a section was needed to issuing of the section to transfer to the hospital to assessment to um uh monitoring to subsequent release mm. following detention that whole process lasted about two months end to end okay. however 
happened again in the pandemic. Right, and, that's crazy. And, uh, yes, and in that instance, a much longer section had been awarded. And so that process went on for months. Okay. And so the, the, the juggling of, you know, again, a privilege to have a job during the pandemic, a privilege to be able to have space and time to, to write, but to be managing this type of situation with remote conversations with doctors amongst the chaos of the nature of the role that I was doing at the time was incredibly overwhelming. And because it was the pandemic, it was extremely isolating. How would you advise someone that is looking after someone um, that is going through that to cope? Because also, I'm also thinking about your mental um, safety in this. So what are some of the things that helped you to get through that that period? I have some amazing friends. Uh, I have some amazing friends who, until I've gone through some of these things, haven't seen how much I've been carrying and who recognized the heaviness and weren't afraid to sit with me in it. Um, uh, friendship is a spectrum and mm. um, there are some things that you can expect from some friends and not from others. For me, many of my friends feel more like family. And so I have no problem saying that some of my closest friends live on the other side of the world because we worked out how to communicate very well and not feel that distance and so the pandemic didn't adjust those relationships it was very much business as usual mm. um but these things do change over time and uh the intensity does eventually lessen i think the biggest challenge for me was coming to terms with the fact that this is probably or that was probably not the last time I will have this experience. And so it was it was more about how do I move through this with different expectations than I went into it with and who can encourage me to just keep letting things go and to accept not just the situation for what it is, but my mum when she's in these states of mind or in these situations, um, so that it becomes much less about the dynamic between me and her or parent and child or person with resources and, and person without sufficient resources. Um, but to actually say, I need to see things clearly and to see things as they are. And, and that's really what I needed my friends for, mm. because I can tell myself as many lies as I need to to get through the day. Right. But actually, at some point, you have to face up to reality, because otherwise you're never going to be able to make peace with it. So, So effectively, it's important for individuals to be honest with themselves about the situation, about what could potentially happen again, what has happened. Um, because that's really hard, especially because your mum's so accomplished as well. It, I can imagine it being difficult to see her in such a vulnerable place. Do you know, one of the hardest things for me, and I'll come on to Faith in a, in a second, one of the hardest things for me was the way that she was treated. Now, despite the... Um, emotions of the situation and mm. some of the decisions that were made medically are extremely questionable. In the UK, right? In the UK. Yeah. And, and many of the decisions that overrode conversations that my brother and I had had with the doctors, which was immensely frustrating. Um, but it was that presumption that if you are having mental health difficulties, 
you must be somebody who cannot be trusted. And therefore, there's not a word that comes out of your mouth that is taken mm. to be reality. Mm. And so she would say, but this was my career. You know, I worked at NASA and I did this. And, you know, my ex-husband was employed at, mm. at, at X or, or Y place. Mm. Or, you know, this is where we lived. Or go mm. and speak to this person. Mm. And the number of times I got a call, your mother has said this. Um, but, you know, we thought that that must be ridiculous. I was like, no, that's correct. No, that's oh, correct. Wow. No, that's correct. No, that's correct. Um, and part of it was they were seeing her as someone other than who she was, i.e. Right. they were not seeing her or um, the issues that she was presenting with, partly because she's so smart. And so our challenge as a family was, well, she knows how to get herself out of this situation without getting the help that she needs because she doesn't want to be here. I was vilified because I was keeping her there. And um, it was very, very difficult to see or have insight into the way that patients are treated at, at psychiatric facilities. And part of it is a lack of funding. Um, you know, I, I said one of the things that is, is really needed here, you know, we've we've been in this situation three times as a family mm. and um, aftercare or next steps or whatever, entirely lacking. Why do we not have money for counselling services or alternative therapies? Or why is that not an option that can be prescribed as a uh, in combination with prescription drugs? Oh, we don't have those facilities here. We don't offer those at this hospital. I was like, you're missing a key opportunity to mm. ensure that these types of things set people on their journey to move forward in the same mm. way that you do rehabilitation with prison offenders yeah. just let people go and hang them out to dry but it's not working like that so it got me thinking you know how can I be a better advocate um, but also having to accept that racism is pervasive mm. and that that played a critical part both in diagnostic medicine but also in outcomes and also in the ways that she was treated on the ward. And that was immensely difficult to, to stomach. And I, I had to shove a lot of that down because in the wake of what was going on in broader society with, with George Floyd, you know, my whole social network was um, uh, really struggling with coming to, to grips with um, many of the issues that are raised with that and allyship and mm. um, apologies left, right and center, microaggressions coming to the fore. Um, it was very difficult to talk about that element of my experience with my close friends. And so I, I didn't, but I, it is something that I do raise in my book because it's undeniable. When you say that you felt like, not you felt like it, it was racism and it came to those elements of medical treatment and so forth. Do you have some examples? Because I think these are things that unless you're exposed to it, people don't know. Because if, if hypothetically speaking, there was going to be a GoFundMe or a charity, whatever it was, um, to support um, black individuals that go through these situations, it would be good to kind of gain some understanding as to what are some of the challenges that we face. So what were they prescribing things that were too strong or weren't strong enough? Were they treating them, like neglecting them in the world? Like what sort of things? Black hair is not the easiest to manage. One of those feeble little combs probably isn't going to cut it. Mm. Making a, a request so that that person can have dignity in the way that they present themselves when they show up in society and mm. always look very kempt, if you're mm. making it impossible for that person to have any sense of dignity when you're injecting them in un 
in, in places that never see the light of day, mm. forcibly restrained by six people um, so that you can get the necessary medication into them um, in the most effective ways. Um, that's creating new traumatic experiences that don't need to be made. Um, also, this idea that black people cannot be intelligent or they can't have had careers mm. you know oh you there's no way that you have a phd that is well crazy. why why not you know well spoken clearly from somewhere else um you know very au fait with all of the medical diagnostic terms um that kind of denial is is problematic but also mm. for us as the family to have experienced this over and over and over again and to mm. have a hospital that says no we're not treating you for the condition we're not going to treat her for the condition that you say that she has we're going to treat her for the condition that we've determined that she has mm. which i can understand from a medical perspective but if you're giving the wrong treatment to an individual and the nearest relative has the opportunity to withdraw that treatment you kind of got to listen. And if you choose not to, not only are the outcomes worse, but also it undermines trust in the system. And so there was an element in which we presented ourselves and our experiences and our testimonies. And there was like awe from the doctors about how together we were and how successful we were. And, and I just thought this was completely inappropriate. Um, if I wasn't somebody who was able to advocate for myself, far less the person that I'd been legally made responsible for, how much worse this could have been. And um, yes, so uh, I think it's largely the system rather than racism per se, but I, I just want to express that there were feelings of if we looked different and if we had a different background, mm there will be some of these hurdles that we wouldn't be having to face. Yeah, 100%. What can we do to help? That's a great question. Um, I'd love my book to be published. And again, not so that I can be famous, not so that I can um, take a huge advance, but simply because there aren't enough people talking about this. From and your experience. Well, from the family's perspective, mm. right? I, I think there are a lot of people who experience um, trauma or who have been through the mental health system who share their stories. Um, but there is a unique perspective of um, the impact of poor mental health consistently through childhood and adverse childhood experiences and, and the resilience that you need to be able to create in a child through safety um, and general well-being mm. um, that uh, is going to continue to fracture society if we don't figure out better ways to, to deal with it. Um, I'm also an ambassador for MIND. Okay. So there are opportunities to give interviews and to support the work that they are doing, mm. both in lobbying the government for changes to the mental health legislation. Mm. Um, and I think that is a kind of uh, a key way in which people can help is by um, responding to consultations and sharing their experiences and speaking to the media. Um, and uh, I haven't really thought about what it would look like to find a group of people who were in a similar boat, partly mm. because I haven't had time. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, we go to a restaurant and we leave a review. We go on holiday and, you know, you check on TripAdvisor to see what your experience is. I would hate to think what the reviews would be like if we had to do an assessment of the psychiatric facilities across the UK. But that would be a brilliant idea so that the, it, things could, like this can really be brought to light because yeah. individuals probably don't realise. And then there's the 
Are there any private um, caretakers when it comes to the medical, well, the mental health hospitals? The, the, the peculiar challenge is that the way that sections come about, there is usually an interface with the police. The yeah. Oh. So um, I don't know offhand the uh, ways in which the private medical system uh, would intervene in that process. My understanding is that it is always redirected to the oh, NHS okay. facilities okay. Um, because they provide uh, acute specialist cares in, right. in private hospitals or specialist mental health consultants. So it might be a psychiatrist um, specializing in bipolar disorder or Understood. borderline personality disorder or, or whatever. Understood. Um, uh, but even if it were possible to... Um, have a private medical facility uh, thinking more much more like the US the expense of that and the burden on the families to be able to get the type of care that would be needed and the um inherent conflict between how long the patient needs to stay there mm. and how much money the facility will get mm. for the patient's continued stay there i'm not sure how you would resolve that but i'm kind of just mm. thinking off the top of my head I'm thinking as well. Thank you for bringing us this to our attention. It's something to to like kind of look into because it's quite serious. I've actually had some individuals on the podcast that have been sectioned as well, so it it's quite sad to think about the the way that they might have been treated or the barriers that they face. Thank you for sharing that as well because that was really personal. Um, I want to get onto your business journey if that's okay. That and that that obviously is a big part of your journey and who you are today and it's good to get context but talk to us about what made you start your consultancy in the first place and by the way I love the fact that Leah's consultancy is Christian, is it, is, is it Christian based or is, that's is, exactly that, is, right. is that the right title? We'll take Christian based. Okay. Um, yes, a Christian initiative. Um, how do I explain this? And don't laugh, um, Autumn of 2021, I had just resigned and I took a very, very short amount of time off and launched into a, a new role that I'd been headhunted for. Mm -hmm. And just before I joined, somebody said to me, Leo, if you could do anything, anything in the world, money, no object, mm. what would you do? And my eyes lit up. And my heart got excited and I said, oh, that's so easy. I would be Olivia Pope. Olivia Pope? You laughed. I said, don't laugh. Sorry, I, you did say that before, but Olivia, why Olivia Pope? Well, Olivia Pope, that is worth clarifying. Olivia Pope, for those who have not watched Shonda Rhimes' Scandal, mm. um, is a political fixer. And she works uh, on Capitol Hill in the United States and works in the White House to um, resolve, let's just say, intractable issues. And she uses a variety of methods, none of which do I employ. Um, but the idea and the concept of being a fixer and stepping into a situation and taking charge and uh, enabling things to move forwards was extremely attractive to me, but also... If you know the can the the character Olivia Pope, um, 
she came from very interesting parents, an incredibly smart, articulate mother and uh, a father who had, um, let's just say, alternative personalities and basically worked in intelligence. And I was like, it's like me. So there, there was so much in the, the depth and the creation of the character that I could resonate with. And it first became one of my favorite series. Now, uh, disclaimer, everyone who works for me has had to watch season one of Scandal um, within the first couple of months of their employment. And uh, let's just say that her uh, extracurricular activities are Is, not yeah. in keeping I, with people I, of faith. I assume. I assume so. I, I think we all know. Even those that don't watch Scandal, I'm sure they've heard what Scandal is, you know. And um, but to answer your other question, uh, Broadstairs Consulting was born out of a heart for reconciliation. So as a corporate lawyer, I've sat in a lot of boardrooms. I've sat in a lot of very, 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 very fractious situations where people are arguing or people are suing each other or people can't figure out how to move past their own egos to make better decisions mm. and there are two ways of going about things you can step into that situation like olivia pope take charge say everybody look at me i have all the answers mm. um you know pay me a million dollars and uh she gives them the answer and then uh, off everybody goes or you can say well the best solutions are collaborative and people tend to only get upset when they know what it is that they want and there's some impediment to them getting it. Mm. And so how could we help them to uh, reach their goals, their KPIs, um, but most importantly, how can we help them to be effective in crisis situations? Mm. We were like, well, we're not coaches. We're not psychologists. Um, we're not primarily made up of lawyers, um, but we do have a heart for people. And we are facilitators. So what if we were all accredited mediators? Mm -hmm. And um, so we started on this um, process of how do we get people qualified? And uh, it was just so amazing to see the opportunities mm. in all walks of life for using mediation as a tool to help people with many of their challenges. And... I was like, how can we integrate this into business so this becomes a business offering? How mm. can we help in workplace situations? How can we help in commercial difficulties? Mm. How can we help in the community? I moved to Broadstairs about 18 months ago by the sea. And Thanet, uh, Broadstairs, Ramsgate, Margate, and the, the Thanet villages mm. um, are some of the poorest areas in the country and uh, some of the highest numbers of free school meals. Um, it's a, a very uh, historically disadvantaged uh, community um, with relative lack of, of funding and, and opportunity. And so moving there was a real eye-opener because it's it's kind of like, I'm here in London, um, you know, work in the city, um, glitz and glamour and champagne receptions and uh, meetings at the top of the shard. Um, so how do I take a, a business offering that's intended to be impactful in those scenarios and, and take it to a community that is almost in a regeneration phase. Mm. And um, the wonderful thing is we can use mediation down there too. So we've set up a Thanet Mediation Center where we do exactly that, commercial mediation, faith-based mediation, uh, community mediation and workplace mediations. Why did you move to Broadstairs? What, um, uh, and by the way, 
Every, whoever's gonna laugh at me can laugh at me, but I had never heard of that location <laughs> until you told me. I was like, "Where is that?" And I said to you and on the why? phone, "I was like, the edge of England. Just go east and just keep going until you get to France." <laughs> why um, did you do that? Go there. I just I finished my book, and I was like, "I need, I need to live somewhere else. I, I need fresh air. I need countryside. I need, um, honestly, I needed to reconnect with." the Holy Spirit. I, I I just, I felt so suffocated mm. post-pandemic and I, I was like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I, mm. I could feel God drawing me out mm. elsewhere and I was like, this this is edgy, you know? Mm. Like, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I know no one there. <laughs> it's, it's not like, you know, I've got friends down there and, you know, we'll, 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 we'll make, we'll make hay. No, I knew no one and I systematically had done a spreadsheet in my head. I, I thought about moving back to Yorkshire. Uh, I thought about um, moving to the South Coast. And I was like, okay, I'm a lawyer. That means that I need to go to events, mm. which means that they probably don't finish at 10 p.m. So Yorkshire's out because the last train leaves ridiculously early from King's Cross. Mm. So that's not going to work. Also, the first on-peak train, uh, the 7.30 train from Harrogate to King's Cross is the most cancelled train that LNER runs. So that's not reliable. We'll not do that. South Coast, I was like, mm, I'm just not very bougie. So, you know, Bryson's not going to cut it. Mm. And um, transport links, uh, a variety of other factors. Mm. The main being, I want to live 10 minutes walk from the station and 10 minutes walk from the beach. Mm. Found myself in Thanet. I thought I was going to move to Margate. Um, so I went down with a friend, said, okay, let's let's press into this a bit more. And couldn't find any accommodation because the Airbnb situation had gone wild post-pandemic. Mm. And so I went and stayed in Ramsgate, which is known as Margate's poor relation. I didn't say that. But <laughs> um, I was walking one day uh, with the dog along the coastline from Ramsgate to Margate mm. and uh, stumbled upon Broadstairs. And I was like, oh, this is the place. This is where I think I'm supposed to be. Really? You just felt it? And I then went back to Broadstairs every Wednesday on my day off for months, uh, looking at houses, um, going to coffee shops, meeting locals, ambling around. And um, I wrote a short story where I compa compared Broadstairs to Barbados, Barbados being the land where I'm supposed to feel at home. Mm. And my family is from the northeast coast of Barbados, St. Lucie, uh, which has the Atlantic cliffs and the rushing waves against the, the coastline. I've been, it's beautiful, Barbados. And the giant kind of plantations and the big estates. Yeah. And um, I was walking uh, not along the coast, but up the main paths in Broadstairs towards the North Foreland Lighthouse and over towards Kingsgate Castle. And I, was, I could see the similarities, but I could also see very clearly that I was at peace there in a way that I had never been at peace in my, quote, homeland. Mm. And um, I, I wrote about it. I wrote about the land calling to me for um, an Achette short story competition, which I was shortlisted for. Oh, and okay. uh, it was it was really great to press into those feelings that had I not written about them, I would have mm. dismissed or forgotten about. Um, but... Uh, it's not called the creative coast for nothing and the skies are incredible and it's really? peaceful it's peaceful is that what it's called for real the creative coast yeah i didn't know that 
at all. And you you found complete peace there. You're happy. I've got an amazing church. I've got an amazing home group. Um, I, I do a lot of writing um, for the Broadstairs Beacon on business and the economy. And I get to um, know all of the business leaders in the community. I get to go to many of the town halls and town council events and meet a lot of the per the councillors and MPs and mayors and uh, really feel like I'm kind of at the epicenter of things. So um, it's been an amazing opportunity to build relationships, uh, but also to be able to stand with people in their struggles and, and difficulties. And I, I've made some amazing friends over the last few months, especially many of whom have been podcast guests, which is a real delight. Um, but it's also challenging to be you know, in your mid thirties and to have moved somewhere on your own and to be doing life on your own, whatever that looks like, and to try and plan for a future that you're not quite sure what that's going to look like. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and as you have probably worked out by now, uh, my life has not taken a straight path. So we are continuing on the winding to uh, wherever God is leading me. And my big thing is that I will step out in faith because I'm keen to be obedient in everything that I am called to do. And so even if it looks like it's going to be an uphill grind, I will do that willingly. You do it. It's fine. God's going to take you. Do you know what? I was interesting enough. I was listening to a sermon this morning um, um, by Sarah Roberts, right? And she um, she was saying that enough of us just need to move. Even if we're fearful, just move with the fear because well, God's going to take us through it regardless. You know, like it's it's fine he and will not leave us or he, forsake us he it's fine and actually for even those that are listening that are not christians or not christian based when you think about life in general and you look back at say where you were three years ago five years ago and where you are today and the challenges that you had in between had you not known like you would have known that you would have got through those challenges at, at that time or through those hurdles or be where you are today so i mean to be honest i <laughs> you sure I was going to make it through this year. I mean, really? honestly, setting up Broadstairs Consulting is the hardest thing I've ever done Why? in my entire life. Why? Why has it been so hard? Because when you get an opportunity to partner with the Holy Spirit mm. in your day job, mm. there is resistance. And that resistance did not look like any resistance I'd ever seen before. My spirit was like near broken. And um, I, I felt myself being taken to places psychologically that I I hadn't I, I had not been that low. Um, but really? Yes. I mean the 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 opposition has been real. It's only in recent weeks that that has lifted, and I I yeah I'm I'm so thankful because it was not sustainable to be in a place where I felt like I was never going to break through or I, or I couldn't possibly succeed, and yeah. um, where I felt like I was holding myself back and the business back and my colleagues back and everybody back, but I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong, and um, yeah I think it is an it's an immense privilege to run a business where. Yes, I'm the founder and the CEO, but but God is at the helm. And um, to to learn to trust Him mm. with the direction, but most importantly, the speed mm. of progress, mm. um, has been a very very difficult lesson for me. The kind of hyper independent, um, stubborn, self willed uh, leader that I am to be able to stomach. What would you say some of your biggest challenges have been that have brought you to a, a mental point of 
like feeling down. I mean, statistically, with the amount of effort that's been put in, we should be turning over millions of pounds a year. Mm. Um, and actually, if you look at the approach to winning new business and, and new clients, mm. um, again, statistically, we should have made a lot more progress. Mm. Uh, and this is why I say handing over the reins has been the the catalyst for us actually being able to move forwards because uh, God gives the growth, you know, unless um, he is laboring. We are laboring in vain. And, mm. and, and we... We are, a, we are a team that has learned together to submit. Mm. We all are on our own personal uh, journeys of faith, of course. But the unity and the dependence and the confidence that us going through this process together has forged in us, mm. I think has been both invaluable and critical for us to be able to move into the next segment of what God has in store for us as a business. Mm. And again, that kind of um, commitment is forged through adversity, mm. um, not through um, uh, times of abundance. But I, I think for me to, I know what you need to do to run a business. I, I know where my strengths are. I know where my weaknesses are. I, I know what we could be spending more time doing to move the dial. Um, and, and I and I know... Um, What's my responsibility and, and what's not? Mm. And so to have all of those uh, things in my head and to not be able to do anything because there's been a hold placed on where we're trying to get to and what we're trying to do and where our focus is, that's, that's frustrating uh, as a leader. And I think I, I, I made that synonymous with failure and it wasn't the end of the story. It, it wasn't even the beginning of the story. But 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 that was my temptation because I was like, well, this should have happened by now. And you know, yeah, you know, people are like trust the process, trust the process. Like, forget the process. Like, this, I need to see results. Yeah. You know, like, Lord, I don't want you to wait until the eleventh and a half hour show. I will not believe any more or less in you if you show up at the first hour. Mm. Come on, like, where are you? Mm. And it was in that kind of darkness mm. that. All the questions, mm. uh, all the questions come up. And um, the wonderful thing is that he gives us these rich markers mm. on our journey of faith so that we can always look back and say, well, you know, you felt like this before. What yeah. happened then? Yeah. And you'll feel like this again. What's happening now? And to be able to look at his past faithfulness, to be convicted of his present and future faithfulness, that's again a real privilege, um, but I think I'm very much like teach me the lessons that I need to learn quickly, quickly. <laughs> so I can get on with it. Give me the lessons. <laughs> but I don't want to be the thing holding holding your purposes and your plans back. So do in me whatever you need me to do to become more like you, so that we can get this show on the road. Yeah. And time waits for no man, but yeah. the Lord. Does not time. see time like we see time, and don't I know it? Yeah, he takes his time. And to be fair to you, I can resonate a lot with a lot of what you've said. It is, I'll keep it a hundred percent to you all. It is hard, especially this year. Like for a lot of businesses, there's a lot of like businesses are not letting money go as the, as they used to. Mm -hmm. It's changed a lot. Um, and then also they're not not only has it changed, but they're considering 
before, maybe five years ago, they might have been like, okay, cool, that sounds fun. But now, or that sounds good to spend our money there. But now they're really thinking about it. They're going through processes. They're looking at their KPIs, their business goals. And there's so much to it. So it mm. is difficult. And I completely understand that. And I'm sure people do as well. Um, and I guess there's, there's again, coping mechanisms. Your faith is one of them, which is fantastic. But what other things, what other contributing factors? Because you need to, you need to have like, What's the what's the right word? Like solid things in your life to carry you through these situations. <laughs> you know, you need. So that's that is the friends. That's the right colleagues. It's the right, you know, faith. What other sort of sometimes for me it's a quick weekend away by myself. So So here's the thing. When your entire career has been you being a lawyer, you can throw money at the problem. When you become an entrepreneur that has taken to the end of yourself bootstrapping a business, there is no money to throw at the problem. I've just had to sit in it. Mm. I've had to distance myself from uh, social media, uh, mm. from uh, actually friends, um, mm. because everybody says when you're an entrepreneur, nobody's gonna care as much about what you're doing than, than you do. And mm. that is that is fair, that is correct. Mm. But I have been shocked by how little my friends have tried to understand what it is I'm trying to do. I guarantee if I was making the world's best orange juice, it would be a lot easier for me to translate mm. what I'm doing day to day mm. to my friends. Um, I think this kind of abstract concept of doing something completely new and well, uh, two schools of thought, uh, I can't encourage you really because I don't know whether this is gonna succeed or fail. Um, and then the other is, but Leah, you're fantastic at everything that you turn your hand to. So this is going to be absolutely fine. Mm. And neither of those things are helpful mm. because neither of those things see what I'm experiencing day to day or encourage me in the ways that I need to get to the next step of whatever obstacle is preventing me from getting to the place that I'm trying to get to. Um, and so it comes back to that resilience and tenacity. And I've, I've been saying for months, I've got to back myself because if I don't back myself, nobody else is going to back me. Mm. I've had to go back to ground. I, I did a huge amount of trauma counselling uh, five and a half years um, in the writing of the book. Mm. And I've gone full circle because if you come back to the beginning of the interview where uh, you asked me what my experiences were like at, at boarding school. Entrepreneurialism is synonymous with resilience because of the amount of rejection you face in the process of trying to get to where you're trying to get to. Yeah. The rejection and the abandonment are core life wounds for me. And so unless I went back to the place or places where I thought that I had dealt with some of those issues, they were they were popping up like whack-a-mole because I was experiencing so much rejection in the process of building this business that it was affecting me way more than it should. Mm. I had the opportunity um, two months ago to start EMDR. I got to be a guinea pig at The Conduit, um, which is a an impact-driven private members club that um, I'm a member at. And there's a, a group called the, the, I think they're the technocrats now. I think they were the technophiles before. And um, there's a program that runs EMDR, which is a trauma um, based treatment used by medical professionals to um, use virtual reality headset to administer that EMDR training and then train 
the psychologists mm. who are physical people mm. in the care that they're providing to the individual undergoing the treatment. And every week I've had the opportunity to go go through a memory that was holding me back and to find freedom and to feel lighter and more peaceful mm. and all of these things. And um, I had my seventh session yesterday and the feedback was, well, this has been transformative for you, hasn't it, Leah? Because you couldn't see how heavily burdened you were, but look at the lightness that you have now. Mm. And I was like, how can somebody write a 95,000 word trauma memoir, having gone through, mining through so many mem memories of the past mm. and still not processing mm. those places in which you get trapped because it was so painful for you, your mm. body protected you by shutting you off from those feelings. Um, and so, again, there's been a real kindness, I think, in me being able to face up to some of the things that I've experienced and, and some of the things that um, have taken root in my heart and that God just does not want there mm. um, and that I need to be free from, to be able to be the leader that I need to be, to be able to run this business, to be able to be effective and impactful and all the things. Um, but I guess what I'm really saying is sometimes not even your friends are enough, your family are not enough you got to do the work. And I hold myself to very high standards. I hold my clients very high standards, but I don't want to be a hypocrite by not following the standards that I set for my clients. And so here we are, uh, a work in progress, doing doing the best that I can to commit to continual training and growth and progression um, to be the best example that I can be of a willingness to commit to changing and becoming more aware of my blind spots and to mm. become you know, the best version of myself that I, I can mm. um, without that threat or the painfulness of being a perfectionist and having to be mm. something that I'm not. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that ultimately you can't control any outcome, but you can control your actions. So as long as you commit to whatever actions, that's it. That's in your control. And that's all you can do. Yeah. And you have to just keep going from there. And I find that with, for example, I've got like a daily fitness group with my friends and I find that just every day I'm just saying, have you worked out today? You good today? Just those habits. Let's not be too pressurizing on the end goal. Let's just get into the habit of living. And that yeah. in itself feels nice because it's a small, I checked off that one thing to do today, you know, or whatever that is. So keep focusing on that. Like it's, it's a process and we're, we're being yeah. real about it. Thank you for being so real about it as well. I think that's the thing that I have learned if there was a takeaway from the last, well, I suppose year of fully stepping into self-employment. I have a tendency to operate three steps ahead. And what I've really learned to do is the one step at a time. I don't, I don't have to have worked out three steps ahead mm. because I don't need that today. I don't need exactly. that now. I don't need that in this moment. I have what I need to take the next step. I think exactly. it was Maya Angelou that said, when you know the next thing to do, do do that. Mm. Um, when you know better, do yeah. better. Yeah. Um, to free yourself up from, I'm doing the wrong thing or I don't know what to do. Do the next thing. Mm. And I'm not in control at all. And there is great freedom in that. Um, there, is, there is great freedom in knowing that though I am not in control, I know the one who is in control. Mm. And learning to rest in that freedom, I think, has been the greatest blessing. Because if you'd asked me five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, you would have been that. I would have laughed you off the street.
because it wasn't possible. I was so, so much of a control freak. I'm a, I'm a totally different person. And that is God's work in me. That's amazing to hear. I love that. I know we're, we're kind of running out of time now, but just so that the listeners can know, um, where can they hear about you, your your book? To, I know you said you have to publish it, right? Um, and what can they do to help and support you? And not necessarily help as in like a handout help, but what can we do? It might be a follow, it might be a, a repost, it might be someone who's a publisher. What are some of the things that we can do to help to elevate you? Oh, that's so kind of you to ask. Um, well, I can be found on Instagram at Seen Heard Spoken. I can be found on Twitter at Only One Leah. Uh, Broadstairs Consulting has its own Instagram, Twitter, and Threads page. We're also on YouTube, where all of our podcast episodes are also uploaded um, in arrears. Uh, you could follow the Longest Day podcast and uh, give a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a rating on Spotify. That would be immensely helpful. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the market for speaking engagements. So if you need a speaker on a range of topics, leadership crisis, uh, faith, business, mental health, let me know. Amazing. Well, we'll definitely be putting you forward for, for that. I mean, I'll consider you for that as well. Um, and I'm sure people will be getting in touch. And I'll leave all of Leah's details in the description so you can click onto it. You can connect, follow, see some more. Um, and I'm really excited for your book to come out. What's, what's it called? It's called My Nearest Relative is Grief. Oh, wow. And I'm also in the market for a literary agent and a publishing deal. But um, okay. I'm working on it. So yeah. watch this space. Amazing. Well, thank you, Leah, for coming to share your story. It was a very deep story, actually, um, and share your experiences, your truthful experiences with us. You're such a, again, like you're a box full of surprises, like surprise, surprise, surprise. Oh, um, but there's so much that I learned and took from this conversation. So I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. No worries at all. And um, I thank you all for listening and watching. I really encourage you to share this with anyone that you think needs it. Um, again, rate it, subscribe, like, all the rest of it. And I will see you all on the next Black Create Connect podcast episode. Take care. Bye.